effort, the speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. If you have a question for the presenter and you're viewing online, please enter it into the Q&A bubble and we'll ask at the end of the presentation. If you're in person today, you will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity. And for those viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the links icon at the bottom of your screen. It is my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker, Dr. Waleed Nasib. He is the lead psychiatrist at the VA. He is the director of consultation liaison for 16 years. He's the consultation liaison and GERO psychiatry trained. He worked extensively with the epilepsy program at the University of Rochester and with an international group sponsored by Emory looking at functional neurological disorders. He has a broad experience with somatoform disorders, conversion disorders, factitious disorders, and non-epileptic seizures. He is the director of psychiatry training education at the VA. He is also the site director for the Emory Consultation Liaison and Jero Psychiatry Fellowship Programs. Join me in welcoming Dr. Nasib. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me, Dr. Prasad. I have some colleagues here that I remember that I miss. Um, this subject is a touchy, difficult subject. You probably will not have a lot of speakers who will be willing to stand in front of uh, a crowd and discuss somatization or factitious disorder for any length of time. Difficult topic, not just for psychiatry, but for medicine and neurology as well. My interest stems primarily from my initial work at the University of Rochester with the Department of Neurology who had started a new program for um, uh, patients in the upstate New York region who were um, being referred for refractory seizures. And as you can imagine, many patients do not respond to standard treatment for seizures because their seizures are non-epileptic. They are psychogenic seizures. So very quickly, the department found that they needed someone in psychiatry to help them with this population, but also liaise with psychiatry to try to find resources to help these patients. And that's where I came in. I was a fellow in consult liaison at the time, was fascinated by these patients. And even though it was a very intimidating subject for me, like it probably is for a lot of you residents, um, I took to really becoming fascinated by why were these patients allowing their bodies to demonstrate with such spectacular, dramatic fashion, things that they could not put into words. Um, so I developed my talks over time uh, and being consult liaison, you of course get frequently consulted on patients who present with medical disease on whom the workup is either negative or does not correspond to the symptoms being presented by the patient. So you end up really kind of developing more expertise. And of course, the big differential always in people's minds is, is the patient malingering, is this Munchausen syndrome, et cetera. And I hope to kind of clarify all of these disorders for you today. Probably my second slide is the one that will help define and um, sort of corral the issues best. We will focus a little bit more on somatoform and conversion disorder, but I do want to offer a big parenthesis on factitious disorder. Because it's pretty fascinating and always kind of titillating, as many of you who have seen a patient with Munchausen syndrome or what have you. It is the subject that you talk about for several weeks uh, in your residency training or as a medical student. Somatoform disorders um, are all 
defined by patients who present with either symptoms or subjective complaints. Remember, they may have even physiologic symptoms that should not uh, lead you astray uh, from the diagnosis. And their symptoms suggest medical disease. DSM-5 added a component to this definition by saying, in addition to presenting with these symptoms, they also have to have an excessive amount of associated thoughts, anxieties, behaviors to try to deal with what, the, what they perceive as uh, medical illness. It's not just worrying about it in a fleeting moment and getting on with your life and nothing else has changed. Like many medical students who go to med school, we have uh, you know the medical student syndrome. We start believing we have every pathology that we get taught about, but most of us generally shed it very quickly, or we may consult a physician or one negative workup, and we're fine, and we move on with our lives. Not so the patient with somatoform disorder. The preoccupation persists. The doctor um, uh, shopping persists. The reading persists. The asking grandma and the neighbor, what do they think and what they should do about it, etc., persists. So there's excessive thoughts and behaviors associated with this um, symptomatology. When you work them up, you either find nothing to account for the symptoms. That's an ideal scenario. That is not the most common scenario. Very often, the medical doctors in due diligence find something wrong. However, whatever is wrong does not quite explain or match the symptoms presented by the patient. There's either a big discrepancy between the minimal finding and the severity of the distress and the disability exhibited by the patient, or it simply doesn't match, doesn't make anatomic or physiologic sense. Yes, I can see there's a little something on your brain MRI, but that doesn't explain why you're in a wheelchair, <laughs> okay? So those are the types of discrepancies and you have to have some medical training to be able to appreciate them that often become the signature of somatoform disorder. There's big discrepancy or excessive distress and disability exhibited by the patient. Please refrain from thinking all or none. We either find a full medical explanation, therefore it's real and it's uh, legit, or we don't find anything and that's for it's all in his head. And that is definitely somatif uh, somatoform or malingering. It's often not, not quite like that. All right, here's the slide that I was referring to earlier. It's an important slide to help you kind of uh, define what we're talking about today. Uh, at the very top is malingering. Just want to remind uh, everyone here that malingering is not a psychiatric diagnosis. It's a v, it used to be a V code. It's a behavior. You can call it a misbehavior. It is always self-serving. Patients who engage in malingering know exactly what they're gaining from it. There's nothing unconscious about it. They're quick to let it go if it's not paying off or if the cost is going to be too elevated. And they perhaps will do it again if it did pay off etc., etc. It's all very calculated, all self-serving, and not a psychiatric diagnosis. One step below that is the uh, mythical Munchausen syndrome, uh, which belongs to the broader category of factitious disorder. These patients are very mystifying in that they deliberately, willfully, intentionally either create the illusion of illness or create illness uh, in order to gain access to the sick role, to gain access to the hospital, to be viewed as someone who is very sickly. So there are multiple mechanisms you can uh, uh, engage in to achieve that. You can either falsify documents, forged documents to suggest you've had a heart attack or you've had epilepsy. You can simulate illness. You could be, become a very good actor over time. 
we had one extraordinarily skilled patient at Strong Memorial Hospital, who for three days fooled some of our best neurologist clinicians into thinking he had a stroke with an alternate. He had hemiparesis on one side and hemifacial paresis on the other side. It was incredible how good he was. And it was all factitious. At any rate, so they can get very good at it over time. They can also inject themselves. They can ingest things to make themselves sick, or they can simply interfere with an existing illness to make it worse or to prevent it from healing. Be aware that you may have diabetes as a Munchausen patient. Uh, having Munchausen doesn't protect you from having real medical illness, but then you start using that illness to gain access to the hospital, to claim that nobody seems to be able to help you, that your treatment is treatment, uh, the, your condition is treatment resistant and so on. So with diabetes, nothing would be easier for them than to take too much insulin and end up with recurrent severe hypoglycemic events, get in the hospital or not take their insulin, swear that they're taking it and then end up with DKA and ending up in the hospital over and over and over again. What is mystifying about it is that they don't seem to be gaining much out of it except being in the sick role and playing games with the hospital staff. They actually engage in potentially very dangerous and painful uh, behaviors that either beget them invasive diagnostic workups or invasive interventions that could be extremely dangerous in the long run. And many such patients have been known to die as a result of what they do to themselves or what the doctors do to them to try to fix the condition. They don't seem to be phased by that at all. The name of the game is to persuade the medical staff that you are a very sick person and that you're gonna need to be in the hospital and to resist discharge uh, with the utmost uh, emphasis as soon as they sense that somebody's about to discharge them, new symptoms emerge or the symptoms get better or they accuse people of incompetence, they threaten litigation, they almost force house staff into abiding by their wishes or their, they demand specific interventions, specific tests, specific doses, specific routes of administration of medications. That is your typical Munchausen patient. There's not much about what's driving them, except an unconscious need to be in the sick role. It's almost like a roller coaster for them. They can't avoid uh, uh, engaging in almost compulsive behaviors to gain access to the hospital. And it doesn't make a lot of sense. However, in my experience, when you get to know them, particularly um, the non-Munchausen variety, and I will explain what the difference is, you often end up finding psychological motives that are very powerful, that are unknown to the patient or unaccepted by the patient that may be driving them to acquire the sick role, except they do it deliberately and willfully, unlike the somatoform patients who are not believed to be engaging deliberately or willfully in deceptive behavior. So who do we say has Munchausen syndrome? Okay, so as you know, Munchausen is, a, is the name of a fellow. By the way, Munchausen neither had Munchausen syndrome nor discovered Munchausen syndrome. <laughs> the poor guy actually was a victim of someone who was a crook. The real name of the villain was Eric Rasp. Eric Rasp adopted Munchausen's identity. He literally stole his identity and published a book to make money off of Baron von Munchausen, who was a very reputable cavalry officer in Germany. And he published the so-called autobiography of Baron Munchausen and his famous adventures, made a lot of money off of it. 
It wasn't Baron von Munchausen, who was an honest person, who was a storyteller, and he was an entertainer. And uh, that fellow eventually got sued. He had to flee Germany, etc. So the idea that you would become an imposter and lie and deceive and adopt some alias for personal gain stuck with the name Munchausen. And that's where the term Munchausen syndrome came from. Very sad for poor von Munchausen. I actually gave this talk about 18 years ago or a variant of it in Sonthofen, Germany with the US military. And as I was looking at the map to go to Sonthofen, it went through Munchausen. I was like, wow. So I stopped, I pulled over on the side and I snapped a picture of the um, entrance to the village. It was fabulous, you know, to present the case with a picture of Munchausen. But at any rate, who do we call having Munchausen syndrome rather than just garden variety factitious disorder? Munchausen patients tend to be male where most factitious patients are female. The Munchausen patients are older males, usually in their 40s, 50s, 60s, or 70s. They tend to be what we call peregrinators, vagrant people. They have a moving lifestyle. They never stay in the same community. They tend to travel from one uh, city to the next. And you can easily imagine why. They often burn their bridges with the local healthcare community. People talk. How staff talks, you wouldn't believe the guy I had today. Oh my God, he's so good at faking this or that. And he has the Munchausen syndrome. Pretty soon they get angry with everybody or everybody has their number. They again, threaten to leave AMA and they end up leaving AMA, threaten litigation, hop on the next bus or train and move on to the next city to prey on the local healthcare system. So they end up really isolated with very few permanent connections. And they have this vagrant lifestyle, the peregrinator uh, uh, Munchausen uh, patient. Number three is that they are pathological liars. They engage what, what, you, what the literature had described as pseudologia fantastica, meaning false speech, pseudologia, false stories that are very fantastical in nature. Dramatic stories of losses, multiple wives dying in tragic circumstances, tornadoes, floods, earthquakes, multiple cancers in the family happening always to the same person. And that should always alert you that there's something fishy about that. It is so implausible that all of these disasters could be happening to the same individual. And let me give you um, an anecdote here about how dramatic that can be. Um, about three years ago, one of my medical students started presenting to me the case of a 50 some year old who was admitted for chest pain on medicine. Uh, but reported severe depression. So the student goes, this poor fellow lives in North Carolina. He is very depressed because um, two weeks ago, uh, he lived on a farm uh, with his wife. They had a barn with cows and it started raining and raining and raining. And there was a stream nearby. The water started rising and threatened the barn and started actually dismantling the barn. The wife runs out to try to see if she can do something to save the cows, and she gets pulled in by the raging waters. He runs out to try to save the wife and the cows, but mostly the wife, <laughs> grabs her hand, but her hand slips out of his, and she's scared away, and she dies. And by the way, two weeks prior to that, his 14-year-old daughter was in a motor vehicle accident, and she died too. At that point, I'm stopping the medical student. 
I'm like, do we have any confirmation of any of this? Is there collateral information? Do we have corroboration from anyone else? No, I, and the student was a bit surprised uh, as to why I would like interrupt the presentation. It's like, we really need to dig a little deeper into this. I would like for you to go back to the record and dig up every possible old record, go into remote data at the VA. We can look up data from every other VA back to 1996, essentially. And I want you to look for extravagant, dramatic, fantastical stories that have affected this veteran that have not been verified or, or proven. And I sent with him the CL fellow. <laughs> so come back two hours later. Oh my God. He has claimed four previous wives have died under tragic circumstances. No evidence of any farm in North Carolina or barn or anything whatsoever. Further, he was able to discover that the same fellow had been actually hospitalized at our uh, inpatient psychiatric unit many years prior. And Dr. Uh, Pandey, Ajita Pandey, had suspected foul play because he was hearing way too much fantastical stuff. Finally, managed to call the, the patient's mother, who said, Oh my God, you're not the first person who calls me with this. Yes, he's had four wives, they're all alive, and none of them will talk to him. <laughs> so, <laughs> classic story with Munchausen. Another Munchausen case that I saw also at the VA, I was covering the inpatient unit because of uh, somebody who was away. And I get a patient and within two days, I know that's what's wrong with him. I decide, okay, there's no point in wasting time. He actually kind of knew that I was onto him. And when I told him, we're gonna be discharging you tomorrow, he did not protest because he knew I knew. On the day of discharge, he's standing at the nurse's station, screaming at uh, the nurse. How come my prescription is not ready? What kind of a hospital is this? You're all incompetent. Uh, my ride is waiting at the door. I need to leave. I don't have my uh, medications. It's like, Mr. Smith, let's get this settled. Why don't we walk to my office? I have prescription pad um, and I can write it there for you. You can catch your ride right there at the outpatient entrance. He's happy. He's now discharged. We're walking down the hallway, he and I. I look over, he's wearing a peculiar t-shirt that I recognize immediately as the emblem from a Led Zeppelin album. I'm a huge Led Zeppelin fan. For any of you who don't know Led Zeppelin, greatest hard rock band of all time. Anyway, I'm a big fan. Huh, you're a Led Zeppelin fan, I go. And he starts writing his text. Oh my God, Dr. Nassif, you know Led Zeppelin? I can't believe it. My doctor knows Led Zeppelin, this middle-aged Lebanese doctor, you know? So you know how I got this t-shirt? Led Zeppelin is having a grand reunion. They're coming to Atlanta this coming August. And if you get your tickets, they give you this free t-shirt. This is how I got it. I'm now very excited. <laughs> Imagine a reunion, Led Zeppelin, they had been disbanded maybe 20 years. And for them to come to Atlanta, I had never seen them. I was very excited. We go to my office, I write the prescription and he is literally going, go on, go online, get your tickets. I'm like, good Dr. Nassif's not going to be looking for Led Zeppelin tickets while his patient is waiting for his prescription, right? So, <laughs> so I politely give him his prescription. Off he goes. He's discharged. Sure enough, I go online as soon as he's gone. No reunion, no concert, no Atlanta, nothing, no free t-shirt, nothing. None of it was true. It was one big fat last lie that he gave me just because he picked up on the fact 
that he got me, you know, hooked on something or excited about something. Pathological lying for the sake of it. Many of them use a lot of aliases, often to elude detection because they know they have a history somewhere and they don't want people looking them up. But sometimes they do it for the fun of it because it's drama and it captures people's attention. They love the drama. They thrive on drama. That is the Munchausen patient. All right, the category we'll focus a little more on today is somatoform disorders. It's a group of disorders, it's not just one. By definition, all of them are believed to not be generated by the patient deliberately or willfully or intentionally. Further, the patients don't know why their body is acting in this way. So it's unknown to them and the motives for the symptoms that emerge are unconscious to the patient. And we'll spend a little bit more time on that. There may be some conscious gain, but it's not preponderant. As you can see, there's a minus before the plus. Please do not think that every person who is coming up with symptoms that don't quite make medical sense is out looking for something, you know, opioids or benzos or disability or some goodie, you know, from someone. It may be true, but it's probably unconscious in the case of somatoform disorders. Um, and then finally, just to illustrate things to some of the more junior trainees, I think many of you here who are seasoned in working with patients know this very well, but even in the context of genuine illness, where you do not choose to have AIDS or diabetes or cancer or what have you, look at all the pluses about being uh, in the sick role. There's a lot of conscious and unconscious gain for being in that wheelchair, and I use a wheelchair as sort of uh, the, the metaphor for being disabled or being sick. It pays to be sick in a society that treats the sick well, and we generally do. So you get, you know, that very special sticker where you can park everywhere, first, you know, first row. Uh, people treat you with reverence and respect. You may be getting a fat check from Social Security or from the VA and what have you. People treat you differently when you're perceived uh, as a disabled person. And there, uh, that could be a very powerful motive for people to become sort of attached to the idea that they're a sick person and they deserve special treatment. Some of these benefits, if you will, are conscious. Patients may flat out ask you, if I get better, am I gonna lose my disability check? But others, it's unconscious. They will claim they want to get better, but after a while, you realize they're really not getting better. Nothing seems to be working. They actually seem pretty comfortable in that wheelchair. And you start wondering, are they really motivated to get better? And you have a very good question on your hands because that may not be conscious to them. And we have fancy words to describe that in psychiatry. Sometimes we call it resistance to treatment. Sometimes we call it sabotaging your own treatment, you know, unexplained treatment resistance, et cetera. But remember, there could be very powerful motives for patients to actually want to remain in that wheelchair. And that should not be underestimated. We often go to health school thinking illness is bad, health is good. My job will be in the future to carry patients from point A to point B. And that's how the world works. Wrong. That is not how the world always works. Sometimes point B is a very addictive place and we have to take that into consideration when we are treating patients. There may be a lot of motives for them to stay exactly where they are. All right, here is the list of the uh, somatoform disorders or somatic symptom disorders as the SM5 calls them. The conditions don't change, the patients don't change, the names that we call them change, and they change all the time in psychiatry. Every DSM 
you know, iteration will bring some subtle changes. Sometimes it is driven by science and data. Sometimes it's simply driven by medical legal concerns, societal preoccupation with a uh, concept or a term that has become totally inadequate. Remember, we started medicine with idiocy and cretinism, which were accepted medical terms. But nowadays we see that even things like hypochondriasis is not acceptable anymore. You don't wanna call a patient a hypochondriac. Now we call it illness anxiety disorder. It's exactly the same disorder. The criteria are the same. We just changed the name. The other big one that we changed the name of, I'm always going into parentheses, is dementia. We no longer call dementia, dementia in psychiatry. We call it major neurocognitive disorder. It sounds like a very big, fancy new, you know, neurodegenerative thing that psychiatry has discovered that the rest of the world hasn't. That's not true. It is dementia. Everybody else still calls it dementia, including neurology. And actually even our own researchers in psychiatry still call it dementia when they meet. So please keep in mind that there's social political considerations when we change the names. The other big one that changed is down here actually, somatoform pain disorder. We no longer call it somatoform pain disorder. We call it now pain disorder or somatic symptom disorder with predominant pain. So what did we do? We deleted the term somatoform from it. Hi, why would we do that? Because what if a patient asks you, wait a minute, what does that mean somatoform? Okay, you know what that means somatoform. It takes the form of somatic, but it's really not somatic. Um, it looks like somatic, which essentially is saying, it's really not in your body, it's kind of in your head. Your pain is not real, and that is exactly what they will hear and protest vehemently, because as you well know, chronic pain patients are very invested in their pain. They experience their pain as very real. They suffer a lot because of their pain. They suffer a lot of losses in life. They lose jobs, relationships, or what have you. And it is very offensive for them, for someone to tell them, hmm, I'm not sure about your pain. I think it's mostly here. Okay, so we deleted the term somatoform. We call it now pain disorder. It makes it a lot more real for the patient. The criteria are still the same. Anyway, it goes as follows. The big one at the top here is, used to be called somatization disorder. Uh, the, it's the big somatic symptom disorder. It used to be called in some of the old textbooks, Briquet syndrome. Briquet is named after a French psychiatrist who was a contemporary of Charcot, who described 400 cases of primarily women who had unexplained medical symptoms. And he actually came up with some very eloquent and well-worded explanations about why these patients adopted the sick role and seemed to be suffering tremendously. And how were you able to differentiate their symptoms from objective um, documentable medical disease? Predominantly women, 85% women, and uh, it affects a lifetime. These. Uh, ladies sadly start to suffer usually in late childhood, early adolescence, and spend a lifetime experiencing mysterious symptoms that come and go. There are periods of relative remission, and the symptoms often seem to migrate from one organ system to another and defy medical explanation. Over time, they become the bane of primary care doctors who actually resent seeing them in their offices because they never win. 
They can never put a finger on what is really wrong with them. No treatment ever seems to work. The symptoms are very vague, inconsistent. They change from one visit to another. The patients come with a pile of old records this high. They often claim they have a number of conditions that cannot be verified. We cannot find documentation for them. Also frequently, the number of medications prescribed for these patients is this high. Many of them inappropriate medications, such as benzodiazepines and opioids, very common complication for those patients. And it's a nightmare to try to sort through it. DSM-3 had a list of like 35 symptoms. And if you had 17 out of 35 medical symptoms that remained unexplained, then the patient had somatization disorder. Uh, DSM-4 got a little bit more realistic because nobody has time in a psychiatric office to go through 35 medical symptoms that cannot be verified. You have to review all the charts, of course. So you'd spend a whole hour tracking one diagnosis and do nothing else. And even then you may not be sure that you got it right. So they decided, okay, if you have one unexplained symptom out of four different organ systems affecting the person for multiple years, usually a minimum of two years, then you probably have somatization disorder. Even that is very difficult to do at the bedside. And I actually often ask audiences like you, how many of you have ever diagnosed someone with certainty that they had somatization disorder? And I get very few hands, very few hands. It's extraordinarily challenging. Further, they often are not in the psychiatrist's office, they are in the medical doctor's office. These patients become so desperate for a doctor to understand them or to help them or to recognize that they're seriously ill, because at the end of the day, most doctors who don't find much end up shaking their head and say, I don't know what's wrong with you. Go to that specialist, go to this specialist, maybe go to Dr. Nassif over there in the behavioral health building. And that, as you can imagine, does not go well at all with them. What are you saying? It's all in my head. I'm suffering. I lost my job. I'm about to lose my husband and you're insinuating that it's all in my head. How could that be? It is very difficult to get through and they become desperate for somebody to find something wrong with them. It's the world upside down. Obviously we go to school thinking patients are gonna to come to me because they are worried about being ill and if they are ill, they want to get better. Not so. Somatization disorder patients are actually begging for somebody to find something wrong with them. And it's the world upside and you need to be very sensitive to this fact because our natural instinct is when we do a workup and we find something normal, we think this is good news. Your MRI is clean or your EEG is clean. You don't have epilepsy. You don't have a brain tumor. Your HIV results are negative. Your EKG is negative. That's good news. Not so much for the patient with somatization disorder. Here again, one more doctor tells them, I can't find anything wrong with you. I don't know what's wrong with you. I don't quite believe that you are, there is something wrong with you. You don't belong here. You don't belong in neurology. Your GI tract is completely normal. I had one other such patient at the OVAR, Caroline. She had full-blown somatization disorder. I actually got along with her very well. They always called me every time she came to the hospital. And she was in the hospital more days than not. And one day I walk into Caroline's office and she goes, Dr. Nassif, I have great news for you. I have found a wonderful primary care doctor. I'm like, wow, who is this magician? <laughs> so she goes on to say how much she likes him. And I stop her and say, Caroline, can you tell me specifically what you liked so much about him? She goes, the first day I went to see him and I told him my story. And you can imagine what story that was. 
he told me I was the sickest patient who ever walked in his office. Yes. <laughs> the best doctor in the world is the doctor who tells you you're the sickest person in the world. That's very characteristic. And that detail escapes some of our colleagues so flagrantly. Uh, this group that we were mentioning earlier where I worked with functional neurological disorders had some of the best international experts on conversion disorder and our NIH expert on functional neurological disorders was asked by the audience. The audience had representatives from patient groups, patient advocates for conversion disorder, for functional neurological disorder. Somebody asked him, Dr. X, how do you present to the patient <clears throat> a negative workup when you have concluded your workup and you have found that it is very likely to be a functional neurological disorder? And he stands up and he says, well, the first thing I tell them is that I have great news for them. And I immediately grabbed my hair. It's like, you didn't get it, <laughs> did you? And no sooner had he said that, that the patient advocate Dr. X, you don't understand how we see it. What sounds like good news to you is not good news to us. It's yet again, one more disappointment, one more loss of face. What are we gonna go home and tell our families? He found nothing, nobody can find anything. Everybody, even the best experts in the world think it's all fake or it's all hollow. And of course you're dabbling constantly with the idea that somebody's gonna say, well, you must be faking it. If nobody can find anything, what's wrong with you? You're either crazy or you're faking. Those are the only two options that most of the public perceives. The public doesn't quite know that there is this huge arena in between malingering and, and uh, being crazy. That's called somatization, okay? So please be very sensitive to the idea that delivering the patients good news works with some patients, but not with others. It works very well with patients with hypochondriasis. The patients with illness anxiety disorder are actually seeking reassurance. They respond very well to reassurance. These are the patients who tend to be over-focused on their body, over-interpret what most of us would dismiss. You know, you may have a little belly pain or a shooting pain in your leg or a headache for three days or something like that. And the third day you're okay, or you have some epigastric pain and the fourth day you're okay. Most of us dismiss it, not the patient with hypochondriasis. Oh my God, what could this be? I heard my neighbor once had a little pain here and then they found that he had a silent MI and my cousin ended up, you know, they found cancer in his colon. I better go check this out. They start reading, they call grandma, they call the neighbor. Pretty soon they've built in their head the idea that they have a very serious illness and they better do something about it. Knock, 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 doctor, please help me. I think I have cancer. I think I have MI, I think I have AIDS. Uh, please, you can't imagine the week that I spent. I couldn't wait any longer to see you. Uh, I've even started thinking about writing my will. I think I have X, Y, and Z. Could you please reassure me or tell me what's wrong? The doctor gets the workup. The workup is negative. The patient is very relieved. Thank you, thank you. Can't imagine how much uh, this means to me. I am so relieved. I'm gonna go home. And now the symptoms are gonna come back or you're gonna go back to reading a little more about it and figure out that the MRI is a superior test to the CAT scan, or he didn't do this other PET scan that can pick up pathologies that the regular scan cannot, et cetera. Oh my God, could he have missed something? Maybe he's not as competent as I thought he was. I should look into this some more. 
or new symptoms emerge, or now I have something new and that's not his business, I'm gonna to go to this other doctor, and it goes on and on and on. They always welcome good news. They want the reassurance. That's why we call the illness anxiety disorder. It's this persistent anxiety that you have a severe disease that you know is going to be fatal and you're looking for reassurance and for proof that it isn't. That also comes and goes. Uh, I have seen patients who actually get better over time. Um, we, of course, always try antidepressants and SSRIs to see. It doesn't always work. It works in some cases. But that's the basic difference between hypochondriasis and somatoform uh, symptom, somatic symptom disorder is how they accept feedback and what is their perspective on what they would like for you to tell them. Okay, very important. Pain disorder, it's pretty self-explanatory. You know, it's preoccupation with pain that exceeds what the workup demonstrates and leading to a lot of distress and disability lasting six months or more. That is what we call pain disorder. All of you have heard ad nauseum probably. What a major healthcare problem that is in the United States. I was just reading today that the extra for chronic pain is somewhere in the 500 to 600 billion dollars in the United States, leading to also in part contributing to the opioid crisis and to all the opioid deaths that you've had. And a number of these patients have pain disorder. The doctors can't really find something that is treatable or that can fully explain the level of distress and disability. Many of these patients sadly end up addicted to opioid medications and it becomes impossible to get them off of it. It's like, well, it's clearly not helping you. You're still in the ER twice a week. You're still knocking at doctor's doors all the time. You're not able to work. Your wife is about to leave you. Why are we giving you all of this you know, opioid stuff? We need to take you off of it. Oh, no, absolutely not. You wouldn't imagine how much more miserable I would be without them. So pretty soon, as you are tempted to hand patients opioids or benzos or whatever it is, you end up with two problems rather than one. You have an addiction and you have a patient who continues to seek care and is very miserable. Okay, so uh, one word across the board for all of that is that technical aggressive intervention does not work in somatoform disorders. A surgeon may be tempted to get in the abdomen and see what's wrong and yank out some organ that they think is responsible for the pain. And that happens a lot. It's not going to help. I would like to spend a little bit more time on somatization disorder. Remember, I told you the SM4 and 5 want you to have one unexplained medical symptom across four different organ systems, lasting six months or more, leading to a lot of distress and disability. That's how you diagnose it. It's still very difficult to do at the bedside. When I was reading about this a few years ago, I came upon a cool mnemonic, which I found very helpful at the bedside to help track. It's a screening tool. It's not a diagnostic tool. Okay, so please residents, write it down, or uh, I think it may be in your handout if you're gonna get a handout, but you need to write how that works. Somatization disorder besets women and vexes physicians. Okay, very vexing for physicians and it's predominantly women. S is for shortness of breath. Unexplained episodes of dyspnea that do not respond to standard treatment and people cannot find what's really wrong that is causing this. And this is not occurring just in the context of panic disorder, for example, in a panic attack. It could be a very persistent sense of not getting enough air and seeking doctors to try to figure out what's wrong with my lungs. 
Dysmenorrhea is very common. And that's very puzzling to a lot of trainees. It's like, wait a minute, if this is a psychiatric disorder, how could someone have excessive menses, painful menses, excessive bleeding, uh, irregular menses, et cetera? Well, folks, you would be surprised at how powerful the mind is in terms of affecting our bodies in very profound ways. I think as a species, we very readily accept the idea that our emotions can affect our GI tract very dramatically. You know, we often say, oh, this is going to make me puke or I'm going to get, you know, diarrhea from this or uh, burk, you know, if something is disgusting or whatever. Um, for example, if a child is at the bus stop and they don't want to go to school because they're being bullied or the teacher is excessively harsh, it's not impossible to imagine that that child might start vomiting. They can't tell their mom, I don't want to go to school, etc. They're keeping it quiet and they vomit. I think that scenario is pretty readily accepted. Uh, mom, what does she do? She pulls the child out of the line. Oh, poor you, you must be having a bug or let's keep you home and pamper you for a couple of days. Problem solved temporarily, at least. Did the child stick their finger in their mouth to make themselves vomit? No, it's not malingering. They were just upset enough and it was powerful enough to generate a fairly dramatic physiological reaction. It takes quite a bit to push that food back out. So that's our GI tract. It is well-known and very reactive to our emotional status. Our OBGYN uh, arena is also equally. It is remarkable how often you see dysmenorrhea in patients with somatization disorder. One smart um, researcher years ago, this was in the 70s, decided to do a retrospective study on 100 women who underwent total hysterectomy for non-cancerous lesions. So these women were primarily complaining of irregular menses, painful menses, pelvic pain, cramping, inability to have sex. Those were the kinds, and back and forth to the doctor, nobody can figure out something until some surgeon somewhere, and that was not unusual back then, decides, let's go in there, get that uterus out, you don't need it anymore, and we're gonna fix the problem once and for all. Wrong, it never works. You go in there, you remove the uterus, the cramping persists, or the, the pain moves somewhere else, except now you have a scar. Now you can't have children anymore. Now you're in pain and you've become addicted to opioids. Your life has gotten worse actually than uh, before the surgery. And you can imagine the unhappiness of these women uh, following a procedure like that. It does not work. You need to either refrain yourselves from prescribing too hastily or encouraging our colleagues to refrain from going in with the scalpel or, or with some very aggressive intervention. It does not work, and I'll give you some more examples of that. So D for dysmenorrhea, B is for burning sensations, typically in the extremities. It can be in the scalp or in the genitalia, common complaint. W is for wad in the throat. I feel something is stuck in here. I can't swallow properly or I can't breathe properly. I've gone to multiple ENT doctors. They say they can't see anything or find anything. It's like that lump in the throat. Um, and that is a common finding. A is for amnestic episodes that cannot be explained medically or neurologically. Periods of time that the patient cannot remember. Obviously, we in psychiatry often associate this what we call typically dissociative amnesia or uh, psychogenic amnesia with trauma. You know, that's what you see in PTSD sometimes or, or other forms of trauma. Uh, people forget 
what is difficult to remember? So the first thing we usually think about, if somebody tells you, I can't remember anything between ages nine and 12, we look for trauma, physical trauma, sexual trauma, that is very, very common. It is a natural defense that humans do. They block out those memories that are too painful or too unacceptable uh, for them. That didn't happen to me, I don't remember it. That part of my life doesn't exist, basically. That's a very common finding. By the way, patients with somatization disorder have a very high uh, rate of reported uh, abuse or neglect in their childhood. V is for vomiting. Vomiting, we already talked about the case of the little boy at the, at the bus stop. V vomiting is probably the most common somatoform symptom in medicine, okay? Very, very common unexplained vomiting that cannot be accounted for by the GI workup. And here is one symptom that is very difficult to tell the patient, it's in your head. What do you mean it's in my head? You wanna smell the puke? It is very real. It is very real to the patient, yet we know that our emotions can very powerfully affect our GI tract and the workups are negative. And finally, P for pain, which I've already expanded upon. It's a very common finding in these. So if you have two or more of these symptoms in a patient in whom you suspect somatization disorder, then the chances that they have it are much greater. They're not diagnostic. It's not a diagnostic test, but it's a very cool, easy to administer screening test at the bedside. It takes 10 minutes, then you know you're onto something. Okay, and then you need to do the detective work. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of detective work. All right. Yes, ma'am. Don't get me going on that. Invite me for another session. And I will talk about fad somatization because we have so many syndromes in medicine in general across the last century, if you will, that have defied medical explanation. Many of them have come and gone. Many of them have occurred in the context of social trauma, such as COVID or Gulf War syndrome. Uh, I work at a VA now, and just yesterday, I was asking a lot of my VA colleagues, how many of you have ever heard of Gulf War syndrome? And I got maybe one or two hands. In the 80s and in the 90s and the early 2000s, it was all the talk at the VA. Every VA had an office uh, to investigate, evaluate, treat, support, compensate veterans who had Gulf War syndrome. And at the time, everybody believed that these veterans had been somehow exposed during the first Gulf War to some agent that the government wouldn't talk about. So government conspiracy theory was rife even back then. And it must have been depleted uranium. There must have been biological attacks that the government doesn't want to talk about, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It went on for almost two decades. And now it's so dead, people don't even know that it even existed. All of these offices have been disbanded because there was no explanation found that was consistent across all of the patients. I'm just giving one example. There are many others in the literature and there are some excellent articles being written about this propagation of, and I'm not claiming that long COVID doesn't exist. I don't know enough. I haven't really looked at it enough, but I wouldn't be surprised that it's gonna be something that comes and goes. And that a lot of the patients will present with very vague, inconsistent symptoms. You can't demonstrate it biologically in any way. Uh, and it changes over time and it's difficult to narrow down, et cetera, et cetera. I would not be surprised. It's very common. All right, anyway. We have many others in medicine, some very contemporary. 
conversion disorder, it's the one that presents primarily with pseudo neurological pictures. Okay, it used to be we called conversion any medical symptom that could not be explained. Nowadays, we um, refer only to pseudo neurological presentations as patients with conversion disorder. So you present with mutism, deafness, blindness, paraplegia, hemiplegia, seizure, etc. And it's unexplained and neurology says this is not anatomical, this is not physiological, we call that conversion disorder. Neurology now calls it functional neurological disorder, FND, okay? You can imagine which term the patients prefer. And we had that very argument in that same conference. One of the patient advocates was insisting that conversion disorder and functional neurological disorder were not the same thing at all because they knew that conversion disorder is the psychiatric term and that that term is brought over from psychoanalysis, you know, traditional understanding of how that things work. That's not what we have. What we have is functional neurological disorder. Why? Because there's a word neurological in there. It sounds almost like it's a variant of some other neurological disease. And that is the preferred term by the patients. Always this resistance that this is not about our psyche. There's something medically wrong with us. And that's what we want you all to believe. Of course, the neurologist had to very politely say, it's kind of the same thing. It is kind of the same thing. Yeah, it's a very, very touchy subject for, for patients. So where does that term conversion come from? The term conversion comes from the idea that we are, or the patients are, converting unacceptable emotional energy into a physical symptom that solves the problem at hand. That kid at the bus stop converted their apprehension about going to school into vomiting. That's, and he either was unaware that that's what it was. You know, he wasn't thinking, oh, I just vomited because I don't want to go to school and I can't say it to my mom. And that's really what's going on. There's nothing wrong with my stomach and there's no bug right now in my body. He probably didn't know. He was just like, oh my God, I'm upset, I'm sick, mom, help me. And that's kind of how it works for patients with conversion disorder. Something bothers them, something troubles them, something they need is not available to them, and it's unacceptable to the self. It is converted into a physical symptom that binds their anxiety and solves the problem at least temporarily. We divide it into primary gain and secondary gain. Secondary gain, as you all heard earlier, is the tangible, conscious, uh, measurable gain that you get from being in the sick hole. It's the calculated stuff. It's the stuff that malingerers do. That is not what the somatizers do. There is primary gain at the center of the generation of an unexplained medical symptom. And by primary gain, we mean something that is unconscious to the patient. They don't know what's bothering them or what it is they need. And further, whatever that is, is very unacceptable or uncomfortable to the self. Let me give you the most striking example of conversion disorder that I experienced over and over, not just in the epilepsy clinic. Um, those patients, pretty much the vast majority of them had conversion disorder. But um, between Rochester and coming here, I worked with the US military in uh, Launchstuhl, Germany. And while I was there, 9-11 happened and the conflicts with Iran, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan began. And we started getting all the evacuees from the you know, Southeast Asia conflicts. And launch tool was a triage center in Europe that decided we can fix them up, patch them up, send them back to fight, 
or they're done for the count and we're gonna send them back to Washington DC for out-processing and medical separation. Every week, like clockwork, we would get a patient with conversion disorder. Big Husky soldiers who had never had psychiatric issues, never were malingerers, never like faked anything. Now they are presenting with very dramatic neurologic, pseudo-neurological pictures. Almost all of them had had an incident which in their minds or in the minds of the unit they came from explained the symptom. This one fell off of the ladder on his back. Now his legs aren't working. That one's Humvee overturned uh, and he fell on his neck. You know, his arm isn't moving because he fell on it. That one had an explosion uh, by, the, by the roadside. His ears aren't hearing except EEG is normal. EMG is normal. Audiogram is normal. MRI is normal. Reflexes are normal. Conversion disorder very readily diagnosed by neurology. So they called Dr. Nassif to say, can you look at them and see what's going on? You know, they seem genuinely distraught by this. We don't have a history of malingering or faking or other, you know, antisocial behaviors from this soldier. What do you think? I took to asking all of these soldiers and they all knew what launch tool does. Launch tool is the triage center. We're gonna either fix them and send them back to fight or we're gonna send them back to the US for outprocessing. I asked each and every one of them, what do you hope to accomplish from your stay here in launch tool? Essentially saying, do you want to go back and fight or are you ready to go back home? And over 90% of them told me, fix me up, doc. I want to go back and fight. It's remarkable. You would think, okay, they've had it. It's very obvious. You know, they don't want to be there. You know, <laughs> That's not what they believe. That's not what they believe about themselves. So the legs aren't working. What are we he hearing this? Where are we hearing here? It's the clear primary game. What is the primary game? I'm a good soldier. I'm not a coward. I signed up to defend my country. I'm not a quitter. I'm not letting my buddies down just because of one incident or one accident. Fix me up. I want to go back and fight, but it's not my fault. It's my legs. It's my arm. It's my ears. Look at how hard I'm trying. I've subjected myself to every test you've given me. I took every pill. I'm working so hard in physical therapy. I want to be a good soldier, but what can I do? It's my legs. And these doctors can't seem to be able to fix it. Conversion disorder. What is the real need or the real message here? I've had it. I'm done. I want to go home, but I cannot own up to that. I cannot admit to myself that I've had it, that I'm a quitter or that I'm scared or that I want to go check on my wife. I think she's cheating on me. All of that is unacceptable. That is not me. I am a good soldier. It's my legs. It's not me. Who's speaking the truth? The legs are speaking the truth. Of course, the legs are speaking the truth. The patient is literally voting with their legs. Some of them even got mad at us when we told them, uh-uh, you're not going back to fight. We're sending you back to DC. We're going to put you through rehab. You're going to get better. Try harder. Today, you walk three steps. Great job. Let's shoot for five tomorrow or seven tomorrow. You're on your way to recovery. All right, all right. Or, um, well, that's not really what I wanted. I know that's what you think you don't want, but your legs are speaking louder than your words. So this duality of the mind, the conflict that's within, that's unacceptable to the self, is what we call primary gain. And that is often what generates conversion disorder and other unexplained medical symptoms. It's not me, it's the seizures. It's not me, it's the legs. It's not me, it's the vomiting. 
I wish I could be a good husband. I wish I could generate income. I don't like it that my wife has to work and take care of all the kids and do all the housework. And I'm sick there all the time. It's not me. I'm a good person. It's my legs. Okay. So please remember that the patients, it's almost like a syndrome of self-deception. Somebody put it very starkly by saying it's self-deception. Conversion disorder patients are not trying to fool the world. That's called malingering. Conversion disorder is fooling yourself into thinking you're some person or you want to do something, but your body just won't follow suit. Okay? If you guys understand that duality, that conflict that is within the mind that generates conversion disorder, my job is done today. Okay, that is the most important and the most mystifying aspect of somatization that I think often escapes our friends, the neurologists. They just don't get it. In these conferences, I always told them, if you get to know the patient and understand their context and their family life or how this is happening, what role it's serving in their lives, you can put a finger on the explanation. What is the primary gain? And they were like, I can't find that. I don't see that. You know, some of them really look very genuinely wanting to get better. Yes, but there's something going on that's promoting the sick role. And they're not going to tell you. The whole purpose is to convert it because it's unacceptable to them. They're not going to tell you. It's up to you to figure it out and put two and two together, which can be very challenging. So listen to this here. Now, you all read that in DSM. Typically, conversion disorder follows this trauma or follows a stressor, and we're always looking for that. But remember what I told you about those soldiers. Those soldiers fell off a ladder, had a, a, an explosion by the wayside. That is not the cause of conversion disorder. That is the mechanism. That is the trigger. That is what allowed them to actually express what could not be expressed. You see what I mean? The real cause was they no longer wanted to be there. They wanted to go back home, but it was unacceptable. There comes the explosion or the accident or the, the fall, and now I have a legitimate reason. You don't develop conversion disorder just because you fell off a ladder. You, you fall off the ladder and it gives you a legitimate excuse to express something else that is very deep and very unacceptable. Okay, so please don't always just assume that because something bad happened, that that's the cause. They're probably seeking something else that is unacceptable behind it all. And that precipitant or that, that trigger, if you will, was merely the conduit that allowed them to do that. I know it's challenging to think that way, but you can always figure it out if you actually get to know your patient and the context in which this is happening. It's a frequent disorder. There's here again, female preponderance, but please, please never rule it out on a uh, basis of age or sex. At our, uh, in our epilepsy clinic, our youngest patient, when I was there, I was there nine years working with them, was a six-year-old girl with new onset psychogenic seizures. And our oldest patient was a 77-year-old man with new onset psychogenic seizures. It can happen. Do not rule it out because it's not some young borderline or some young histrionic female. That is not true. That is not true. We'll talk a little more about that. So you still see some of these traditional presentations. They're becoming more rare. Nowadays, we have more subtle, more sophisticated, and more diagnostically challenging presentations of unexplained medical symptoms, Dr. Prasad. <laughs> so be prepared for that. More important is that symptoms change over time. Patients learn 
from what they're exposed to. And it is not a calculated, deliberate, willful act of deception. The more exposed you are to medical pathology, the more your database gets rich. So that it's so powerful, actually, that at the epilepsy program, we avoided placing patients in whom we suspected psychogenic seizures in the same room as those that were having epileptic seizures, because we did not want them to learn from them. So that you ask them a question, and if they don't know, you know what a, an actual seizure looks like, they may give you an answer that immediately tells you this is psychogenic. For example, could you remember what I was telling you when you were having the seizure? Oh yeah, you were telling me red cow, but I couldn't answer you because I was out of it. Well, they know that you were telling them red cow. So you know they had retained consciousness during the seizure, which is completely impossible in a grand mal tonic clonic seizure. But if they know that you're not supposed to remember anything during the seizure, they pretty soon will tell you, I don't remember anything. So as you ask more questions, as they more read more about it, as they're exposed to more pathology, their game gets better and better over time when it is unconscious, unconscious. So you can imagine a very uneducated person coming up with a conversion symptom. Most medical students can immediately tell you this doesn't look right, or this doesn't look like what I learned in med school. That looks, you know, not, not genuine. Or you can imagine what a neurologist who's coming up with a conversion disorder might come up with, how difficult it might be to distinguish from the real thing, right? And you may think that's impossible, that's never gonna happen. Not true. We had a few years ago at Emory, uh, the, that exact scenario. And the patient was completely unaware that this was psychogenic and that there was no actual objective disease there. It can be incredible. But that's right there, the proof that it is an unconscious process. The ultimate proof in our epilepsy program is that 99.9% .9 of the patients who presented to the clinic knew exactly what the procedure was going to be. It was video EEG recording. You record the seizure while it's happening. And with video EEG equipment, you can tell 99.9% .9 of the time this is epileptic or this is psychogenic. Yet they all came. They all came, they wanted to know, they were genuinely concerned, they were genuinely interested in figuring out what was wrong with them. If they were malingerers or if they had factitious disorder, would they have come? Of course not, because that person will know immediately, they're gonna bust me, they're gonna unmask me. I can't play that game with a video EEG equipment. They know, they will know, yet they all came. I remember in seven years, only one patient was extraordinarily reluctant to come and I suspected he had Munchausen syndrome. He was coming at the behest of his doctor and his parents. And he was very reluctant. And when we delivered the diagnosis, he immediately stormed out angrily. And he was the only one in nine years. And I knew then he truly had factitious disorder. He did not want to be busted. And that was not his idea. He was almost forced into it. All the others were like kind of puzzled and interested and a bit mystified by what does this mean and how, how do we uh, get through? All right. Patients choose the symptoms based on something they witness and they identify with and they reproduce later on. So looking for a model is very powerful and very important to understand where did they learn this? Sometimes they can learn it from themselves because they had epilepsy when they were young, they know exactly what it looks like. And that's why some patients with pre-existing epilepsy sometimes will develop psychogenic seizures down the line. 
any one individual seizures is one or the other. And I can assure you, if they're having active epilepsy and they're still having uncontrolled epileptic seizures, they would have no reason to generate psychogenic ones. All the patients that I saw in my clinic who developed psychogenic seizures, who had a background of epilepsy, actually had their epilepsy well-controlled or cured by surgery. They no longer had actual epilepsy happening and they needed to be in the sick role again and they generated psychogenic seizures to be in that sick role unconsciously. It's a fascinating topic. We always look for depression and psychosis and treat them. Don't always find, think you're gonna find personality disorders. That's a misconception. They happen actually in less than 40% of cases. And more often than not, you find passive dependent patients resorting to conversion disorder to express themselves. It's not gonna be your, you know, always the borderline or the histrionic who does this, please. Look for other somatoform disorders. If they have multiple other unexplained medical symptoms, the prognosis is probably a lot more reserved. Often conversion disorder comes as a solution to a family problem, maybe a means of communication. I wanna go home, but I can't say it. I'm gonna let my legs do it, do the talking. That's the classic military example that I gave you. Cultural, social, economic factors, religious factors can contribute to people expressing themselves through their bodies rather than through their words. Sometimes it's trying to explain away personal inadequacies or failures. My seizures came back and I had to quit my job. Well, the reality was you were doing very poorly on that job. And now you had psychogenic seizures that came and saved you from the misery and the failure of, of not being able to hold the job. So which is the chicken and which is the egg is the real question that you must ask yourself. And sometimes simply dependency needs. People have powerful dependency needs that could be unacceptable to them. I would like for my wife to take care of me, but I can't possibly say that or do that. And we have kids now, but what can I do? My seizures are so bad, she has to. I've seen these cases over and over and over again. I need to depend. We had a 40-year-old who was spoon-fed by his mother in bed after having held a job at the post office, of all places, <laughs> but on account of his seizures, having come back and being so difficult to treat, all of them were psychogenic. He was literally in bed 18 hours a day, spoon-fed by his mom, 40 years old, and it served her purpose too, very, very hovering, uh, controlling mother who never really wanted him to get out of the house. And she had a purpose and he had found a legitimate reason to continue to be dependent on her. I'm here because I'm nobody can treat my seizures. So always look at what's going on in their lives to really be able to try to figure it out. And you already understand the difference between primary and secondary gain. Do a good personal and family psychiatric assessment. Look for a history of abuse. Look for a model. Understand where did they learn this from? How do they know to generate these symptoms? When you present a diagnosis, it has to be a team approach. It works a lot better than you saying, I don't know what's wrong with you. Go talk to Dr. Nassif. You know, he'll, he'll figure it out. That's not going to go over well. Having it as a team, and that's how we did it at the epilepsy program, is really the best way. It's important to insist this is unconscious. Most patients are terrified that you're actually saying they're malingering, that they're faking, but you're using fancy words to describe that. You need to say, we know this is unconscious and tell the family this is unconscious. 
highlight the positives. It's good not to have epilepsy. You're going to be able to drive. You're going to be able to get off these medications someday. Normalize it. You're not psychotic. You're not crazy. We're not going to haul you off to the inpatient psychiatric unit. Your body is speaking a language that you cannot put into words. And we are here to together try to figure out what your body is trying to say. If you put it that way, you've got an ally with the patient, with most patients, not all patients, of course. Assure them of ongoing medical treatment. That's a big one because most people fire the patient. You don't belong in neurology. You don't belong in GI. You know, go over there. There's a mental health issue. I'm done with you. My job is done. That's not going to go over well. They're more likely to go to Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic to find a real doctor who's going to figure out what's wrong with them. Okay, and everybody on the team have to reinforce the necessity and the benefit of individual and often family treatment, because often the solution to the problem involves the whole family dynamic. That's a very powerful consideration. I'm going to stop here. I know we're a little bit over time and entertain any questions if you have them. Okay. Challenging topic, but I hope I kept you entertained. Oh, you definitely kept us entertained for sure. Wow is all I can say. Okay, we do have a question online. Um, great talk, to Dr. Nassif. It is such an honor for you to present here. In borderline personality disorder, rapport can often be built by validating their feelings. There is literature to, to suggest that invalidation by parents contributes to their disorder. Do you think there is significant overlap in those with somatization or factitious disorder? Perhaps part the conscious or unconscious motive is seeking a substitute caring parental figure, i.e. a healthcare team. Yeah, that's a that's a complex question that they're asking. <clears throat> and, you know, I've tried to get away from the idea that we need to look for personality pathology in every person who um, uh, displays somatization or even factitious disorder. The reality is that you often find it and that the, the interpersonal dynamics are very powerful and the um, expression of these types of personality pathologies often happens through the body rather than through the immediate. So I often say, well, what is the difference between a borderline patient who cuts themselves every other day and calls you to say, hey, by the way, I cut myself, and somebody who shows up in the ED and tells you, I don't know how these cuts have happened. It's not me. Or I have an illness and I'm getting sick. They're often the same patient, except one of them is doing secretly and the other one is uh, admitting to it. The dynamics are exactly the same. The triggers are often the same. It's some rejection or abandonment or you know, feeling like somebody is not really listening to you or talk, taking you seriously. And it happens over and over. Once you get to know the patient, you see very parallel, very similar patterns. The tricky part is validation has to go only to a point. You validate the sentiment or the emotion. You cannot validate the pathology. If the GI doctor said, your workup is normal, you can't as a psychiatrist come and say, I believe you. You must have a pathology. He doesn't know how to do his job. And let's send you over to Cleveland Clinic. Maybe they will figure out what's wrong with you. You're going to have to validate the sentiment. You feel abandoned. You feel like nobody understands you. You feel like these doctors didn't really believe that your suffering was real that the pain was real, that the sense of aloneness facing this mystery symptom that keeps plaguing you and affecting your life profoundly is very real. I'm on your side, I understand how you feel. That doesn't mean necessarily that there's a hidden 
uh, disease that we must together fight to figure out what it is. I align with your sentiment. I don't necessarily have to align with your perception that there's a medical disease. It's a fine line. It's tricky. But I think we know how to do it once we develop psychotherapeutic um, uh, uh, facility with, with these very challenging patients. The dynamics are very similar, I have to agree. Yes. Thanks for speaking with us about the disease. I can hear oh, it. Okay. Um, I do have a question about conversion disorder specifically. When the psychological stressor is removed, how likely are they to resolve the conversion disorder? You know, like those vets that are at home. Interestingly, you know, conversion disorder gets better on its own with or without intervention in probably over 85% of cases. It is a rare patient that kind of becomes in, um, encrusted, if you will, in their pathology and starts viewing the sick role as a more desirable place than the healthy role. Uh, but that does happen. 15% is not negligible. Actually, the statistics show that, for example, for epilepsy, that the disability of psychogenic seizures is twice as high as that of epilepsy. And why would that be? Because they don't get better if they need the illness to continue to be sick. No treatment is going to work. And there's some unconscious reason for them to want to perpetuate the sick role, and they're going to be disabled. So Yes, sometimes very practical, very down-to-earth interventions are very helpful, like a day treatment program, physical therapy works very well, sometimes cognitive behavioral therapy, retraining them to kind of dismiss the symptoms, etc. can be magic. Uh, I just attended a conference in Rochester on intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy that worked very well for a small group of patients. Uh, conducted by the University of Rochester. So a, very, a variety of techniques do help, but we do have a small subset of patients that become chronic and very disabled. If there's more for them to gain from staying in the sick role, it's gonna be hard to get them out of there. In my experience, the factors of adverse prognosis in the long run are duration of symptoms. The longer they've had it, the less likely they are to give it up. The preponderance of gain, whether primary gain or secondary gain, the more gain there is, the less likely they are to give it up. And of course, the preponderance of a personality disorder. Because patients with severe personality disorders are gonna have a hard time uh, engaging in treatment, looking at themselves, you know, introspection is difficult for them. So when you have nobody to align with or no capacity to uh, have a self-critical uh, uh, observant stance about yourself, chances are you will not get a whole lot better. Yeah. Any other questions in the room? We don't have any online. The 19th century term hysteria, is that conversion disorder or are we talking the entire, how would you equate it to DSM-5? It's probably the, the entire uh, gamut of unexplained medical symptoms. Hysteria came from the idea that your hysteris, which is your uterus, basically uh, was ill. And for a long time, doctors believed that it was actually vagrant, that it traveled throughout your body and caused a lot of mysterious symptoms that could not be explained or treated. So much so that doctors for a period of time were prescribing for women to literally put uh, um, enjoyable sense in front of their vagina to attract the uterus back into its normal position. That is how crazy it was. 
But the idea was that somehow it was a disorder of women and probably related to, you know, the symbol of their femininity, which was the uterus. So we generated this idea that things were hysterical, people were hysterical. Hysterical personality disorder was the previous term before we started calling it histrionic personality disorder, etc. And hysteria was a broad term to probably describe somatization disorder. Patients who had a host of unexplained medical symptoms probably lasting a lifetime. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Um, so one of the things when I try to normalize, I like to talk about the science of anxiety or the science, you know, that these things exist in the central nervous system. And I know there's a lot of research or like with functional MRI and inflammatory conditions and things like that, that help people kind of understand that it isn't just, just in your head. That term I think carries a lot of stigma. So I was wondering if you could offer some insight about what kind of research or what our understanding of maybe what is going on. Um, the group that I was working with, the neurologists in particular, were fascinated by this. And they almost had a, a drive to try to see if they could somehow finally fit uh, the whole arena of, of conversion disorder into a subset of neurological disorders. And it was really fascinating to see. And I kind of stepped back and thought, okay, you know, finding anomalies on functional MRI, which is very true, there's been clear dem demonstration of anatomic changes and physiologic changes in patients with conversion disorder. And at the very basic level, even before we found out, you know, that now you can look at the brain in ways that demonstrate changes, we knew somebody could have monoplegia, conversion monoplegia, and if it lasted long enough, their arm is gonna go to waste. They lose their muscle tone. They become, it becomes non-functional anyway, because you're not using it. So there's always been some anatomic substrate to the idea that somatization. But I wanna remind you that this happens in a lot of arenas of psychiatry as well. In our own department, Dr. Doug Bremner demonstrated that patients with PTSD had anatomic changes. Further, that the anatomic changes can be reversed if the treatment of PTSD is successful. It's incredible. So here we are now with conversion disorder, we're having the same thing. Does one rule out the other? No, I think it's a very useful tool to engage patients and help them be reassured that we're not just saying you're imagining this or you're faking this. Something is happening to you. However, the solution is not Depakote or, or Kepra. The solution is trying to figure out what is driving all of this and leading to these anatomic and very dramatic changes. And the truth is that a lot of patients end up losing a lot uh, as a result of somatization. This is not all self-beneficial. You know, the unconscious mind is irrational in a lot of ways. Patients end up homebound, they can't go anywhere, they're miserable. That's not what their intention was in the first place, but they get thrusted into the sick role and the disabled role, and they're very miserable. So perhaps offering them a platform of organicity is a way to kind of say, I understand this is not just all imagined or faked. There are problems, we need to treat you body and mind, and it's important to pay attention to your body, but also to your mind. Let's work together on figuring this out. It can be a very useful tool. Any other questions? All right. Well, All right. thank you for inviting me.